0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan. Bob is one of our favorite features on the show, bringing us stories of love, loss, comedy, tragedy and success his writing reminds me of the great Pat Conroy's work It has that kind of depth and raw emotion and there is no lying in Bob's stories and you know it when you listen to it because Bob is toughest on Bob and that's what we love about his storytelling and by the way I met Bob just by chance when I had some extra time in the San Francisco region I'd heard about his his storytelling capabilities on a blog he had and I thought I had an hour to spare. Five hours later, I knew I had a contributor. I just knew it. Today's story is part two of Bob's sister's story. She was born with Down syndrome during a time that families didn't know how to manage such a thing. With that stressor on Bob's family, she was placed in an institution, the Porterville State Hospital, and then later the Agnews Developmental Center for Psychiatric and Medical Care. Here's Bob with part two of his sister's story.
1: On the 23rd of June 1969 at 10.45 a.m., I was released from active duty after serving three years in the United States Marine Corps. As planned, I headed to the Bay Area to find an apartment in Mountain View and register for the summer semester at Foothill College. I was not there very long, though, before my promise to visit my sister began to nag at me. What made it worse was that Agnew was just 10 miles east of where I lived. I had to struggle to keep my promise to visit Tony and take her out for the day because I really had too much to do to take the time to spend the day with someone I barely knew. Other than the old picture of the two of us on my mother's nightstand or the day that she was dropped off at Porterville State Hospital were the only vivid memories I had of her. Besides, no one else ever went to see her, so why do I have to go? Maybe my mother's comment about Tony being better off where she is was just the right excuse I needed to avoid going to see her. But at the time they made that decision, it was not, or ever will be, a reassurance and comfort to my mother. I know that decision broke her heart. She tried for five years to keep Tony home, but finally she had to concede that something had to be done for everyone's benefit. The rationalization of deciding... What was best for Tony was insufficient to insulate her from the pain or provide comfort for giving Tony to the state and walk out of her life. But with three boys, a marine husband in Korea, and no family on the West Coast, the empty 400 square miles of Camp Pendleton offered no help to her. She couldn't even find shoes to fit Tony properly. Now, I'm no caregiver, and if I ever wanted to take care of something, I would have gotten a plant. I thought of all kinds of excuses to justify not going. But in the end, I felt it was just something I had to do, something I had to take care of. I intended to take her out, fulfill my promise, and get back busy with my own life. Finally, one Saturday, I drove over to Agnew and picked her up for the day. I had absolutely no idea what to do with her. So I decided to bring her back to my apartment and hang around by the pool. When I arrived, she was waiting for me in the lobby. As I walked in, she stood up and walked towards me. She carried her clothes in a bag and a bunch of her belongings. I said, where do you think you're going? You're not moving in with me. You're just coming for a visit. The young women in the building came by my apartment to meet her and to offer to style her hair, and the guys would dance with her in the evening. At least for one day out of her week, she was no longer a patient, but a 20-year-old woman having fun. It was quite a contrast to how she would spend her time in the ward, the sterile barracks with rows of beds and people who were left behind. She was fun to watch dancing in the apartment. She loved to dance. Everyone told her how beautiful she looked, and she loved all of the attention she could get. She would disappear into the bathroom to redo her makeup, and she'd come out with lipstick all over her mouth, red rouge spread thickly on her cheeks, and her eyebrow pencil went way too far, and her hair was all wet from trying to style it. I remember thinking that in her mind, other people weren't the standard. She had her own. She must have, since standing before a mirror, she could see how she looked compared to the other women. But somehow, she didn't seem to notice the difference. Now, Tony could tell the difference between a Big Mac and a Whopper, but somehow she could not see the difference between her and the other women without Down syndrome. I wondered, well, who does she see when she stands before the mirror? The mirror can't shade or airbrush the face of the person gazing into it. Did she see that she was different? Was she angry that she was unlike other people? Did she ever feel sorry for herself? What did she see when she looked in the bathroom mirror putting on her makeup? I wondered did she ever cry about not being like other people? Were there tears for not fitting in? Or could she really lack the vain self-critical pursuit for a perfect face and body that plagued most people? She did not display or express any jealousies or insecurities to me. Is it possible that it is she that has the better attitude about herself than most of us? I will never know. What I do know is that she never complained about it. I concluded that she just saw herself as Tony, and if you told her she was pretty, she would believe you and if you didn't say anything, it didn't matter. These questions about what could be going through her mind have never left me. What became apparent to me on these visits was that she had a mind of her own and the challenge for me was to create a language in order to enter it and understand who she was and what she was thinking.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with Bob McClellan's story, Caring for My Sister with Down Syndrome. And by the way, if you want to hear another terrific Down Syndrome story, go to our website and put in Bo and Biddy's Coffee Shop. And this is a remarkable story of a woman who had not one but two Down Syndrome children, went through all of the same feelings and thoughts that Bob did. And one day she realized that the problem was hers and not her kids. And ultimately she opened up a coffee shop that is run only by special needs kids and to this day is one of the highest-grossing coffee shops per square foot in the entire country. A beautiful story of redemption and the possible in all of God's life and creation that sometimes there are things in front of us that we don't understand. When we continue, hearing from my sister with Down syndrome, Bob McClellan's story here on Our American Stories. back with Our American Stories, and we return to Bob McClellan's story about his sister with Down Syndrome. Bob recalls the times he picked up his sister from the psychiatric institution to have outings that brought a semblance of normalcy to her life. Here's Bob with the final portion of this story.
1: These parties revealed something else about it. That is, in spite of her intellectual disabilities, she loved affection and intimacy. I would watch how she would sit next to a friend of mine and slowly stroke his hand, and then ask him if she could give him a kiss. She would giggle when I kissed my girlfriend. She would giggle and laugh, and she put both hands over her face in embarrassment, and then point and say, "He likes you." <laughs> she would point at my girlfriend and say, "Not you, my brother's girlfriend." and then giggled some more when I kissed her again. you my brother's girlfriend. (laughs) Dancing with her eyes closed, she let her body sway on the carpet to the beat. She knew all these songs by heart, and you could see her lips moving as she sang along with the record. And her movements, not at all inhibited. She must've learned to dance from TV because she would bump and grind her round little body as if she was a backup dancer. Everyone would laugh and say how people were Down and were so cute and affectionate, but I began to suspect that there was a lot more going on here. I would watch her and think about the fact that in so many ways she's like other people as her body and mind go through the same stages as we age. She knew laughter and tears. She could be sad. Her facial expressions indicated that she experienced the full range of emotions like I did. She knew beauty and would gravitate to those that were her problem was she just couldn't communicate it inwards. I learned to read her moods and expressions to understand how she felt. I learned how to phrase sentences so that they were easier for her to understand. Whether she had wide eyes of excitement, frowns for disappointment, the nodding of her head back and forth, or the looks of what she felt and thought. Silence, signaling disapproval or dissatisfaction. She had feelings. Opinions, likes, and dislikes, but she just couldn't entirely comprehend or articulate them. In so many ways, she was like human beings everywhere. Tony even went through the same biological stages of life that any woman would go through. She's even capable of giving birth. If so, then why wouldn't she want to kiss a man or dance with him if she finds him attractive? I mean, after all, she's a 20 year old young girl. I think being her brother rather than her parent made it much easier for me to accept her as an adult than as a perennial child. When she would reach over to pet my hand, I would say, knock that off. I'm your brother and not your boyfriend. She would giggle, point at me and ask, he's my brother. He's my brother. She made me wonder what's really going through her mind. It became our little joke, but she began to understand that indeed I was a brother and not a boyfriend. I decided to keep the knowledge that my sister was a lot more romantic and affectionate to myself. I didn't want to spoil her fun or make anyone uncomfortable. And if everyone thought she was just being cute and affectionate, well then so be it. She'll enjoy the kisses and the attention anyway. When Tony was informed that I was coming to pick her up, she would dress, pack her handbag, and sit in the lobby for hours before I arrived. When I would walk in the door, she'd be up on her feet and ready to go waving goodbye to those less fortunate who have to stay behind. We would walk out to my car and head right back to the apartment building. One morning I called to tell the nurse that I'd be over to pick her up and was informed that Tony no longer lived there. I said, what do you mean Tony no longer lives there? Where is she? I want to know where she went. But I was told that they could not give me that information as I was not legally responsible for it. I said, that doesn't matter. I'm her brother. I come over every Saturday. In spite of the fact that I was a frequent visitor, I could not get any information of where she was located. The state was her conservator, and as such, they could transfer her as they saw fit or as they saw they needed. I had no legal authority whatsoever, and even if I was her parent or guardian, the state had the legal authority over her because she was supported by it. First, Tony appears accidentally in my life, and now I had to search for her. To do that, I had to cross the line into the unknown world of government-run institutional health care. In that world, she would always be a step ahead of me, disappearing into different homes with different agencies who made the decisions that governed her life. The dismantling of the big block buildings and the smaller ones simply spread the many offices and services she needed throughout the communities they served. But the institutional mentality, remained the same. New doctors, care managers, case managers, psychiatrists, files, policies, all working to treat her, but not necessarily in concert. At some point, she becomes a case member rather than a name. They all may have had good intentions, but good intentions don't necessarily lead to good outcomes. I would imagine what it must have been like for Tony having all these decisions made for her without her understanding or participation. To me, making decisions for someone like Tony should begin with one simple question. Is this something I would want for myself? I didn't argue about medicine or procedures with the doctors or other professionals. I just asked questions. But I knew that a patient can refuse care if they chose to. But somehow no one informed my sister of that right. So consequently, the amount of medicine she took was a lot. Without an advocate, she ended up taking whatever was prescribed to her. And over the years, she took a lot. Institutions manage groups, not individuals. I learned that in the Marines. But we're not talking about training thousands of combat soldiers. We're talking about an individual with an intellectual disability that needs help in order to participate in life. As I moved deeper into the institution, I began to think that my mother's comment about tony being better off in the state hospitals with her own kind might be mistaken once on the inside i discovered that under the guise of health and well-being lies an institution that can mask an indifferent process that is fraught with many threats to an unguarded and unprotected intellectually challenged person a person who lacks the ability to articulate their desires and to understand rational thought without these They simply follow whatever directions are presented to them. I could see right away that what my sister needed in this bureaucratic machine of procedures and handling was a voice that could ask questions, read and review medical instructions, license requirements, housing and prescriptions, and be an advocate on her behalf. An advocate for her, an advocate who would not be easily persuaded or circumvented. I became Tony's voice and helped her to make some decisions on her own. On a very personal basis, there was the discovery of Tony as an individual young woman who despite cosmetic differences, had all the essential agreements that make up a human being, which was my greatest reward. Capturing that humanity and help guide her to a happy meaningful life is the journey we shared as brother and sister. It is out of the length and breadth of overseeing her care for 47 years that are the experiences that I wish to convey to other people who desire that same destiny for their loved one. During the many years ahead, I adopted a philosophy of the three most important rules I follow regarding my sister's care. One, always be cautious. Two, always be prepared to be an adversary. And most importantly, three, always be present.
0: Special thanks to Bob McClellan for that story. And for any of you who have a story that's similar, by all means, share them with us. These are important stories, and and things have changed a lot since the late 1960s and early 1970s. My mom had put on our family the task of visiting uh, institutions of all kinds, from senior facilities to the local mental institution for the Saturdays when we were allowed to bring food and, and other things. And, well, so many of these kids had been abandoned and some of these adults, too. And what I saw there, well, it was was enough to change my life and particularly how institutions deal with individuals. And they just have a hard time, and it's not the institution's fault. There's so much heaped upon them. And again, thanks to Bob McClellan for sharing these real wounds in his life and opening up in such profound ways, because in that earlier part of that first chapter of the story, Bob just wasn't there for his sister. He was selfish. He was a selfish guy. And my goodness, look at the life he forged with his sister. And for all of you who've had to forge these kinds of things, we've spent a bunch of time talking about Alzheimer's on this show and Meryl Comer's story about her and her doctor husband's slow dance to the end. A beautiful story. So again, share your stories, any like this, the caregivers, the advocates' stories. They're important to us, and I know they're important to you. Bob McClellan's story, his sister's story, and so many stories like this across this great country here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and as you know, we tell stories about everything here on this show, and we love hearing from you, the listeners. Your stories are some of our favorites. Our next story is brought to us by Ryan Buck in Des Moines, Iowa, home of our great affiliate 1040WHO. It's called The Hope Story of John Humphrey because it was made for the Humphrey family and their friends at the Lutheran Church of Hope, their home church in West Des Moines. We will be hearing from John, his mother Jennifer, and his father Mark. Let's take a listen.
2: Uh, I've played baseball since I was three or four years old. I've always loved it. I play it every single summer. It makes me happy. I feel good when I play baseball especially when I pitch. Pitching is my favorite thing about baseball. My mom is a nurse, and she listened to me one day, and she thought something was wrong.
3: He came in from playing basketball one day, and he was like, why, my heart feels like it's beating like really hard. So I grabbed my stethoscope and listened to him, and I could hear it.
2: And so I went into the doctor to get that checked out, and while he was there, he said, you have a family history of heart problems, I want to get you into a cardiologist just to see.
4: And Dr. Law walked in and brought his mentor with him from the University of Michigan. And they both looked at, at John, and they looked at Jennifer and I, and they said, John has a very serious arrhythmia that could take his life at any moment.
2: He said, uh, there's no easy way to put this. Uh, It's not my job to put it easy. It's my job to take care of you. He said, you, you only see beats like this or strips like these on people in the hospital. And they have these beats like this right before they die.
3: Your son could die at any time. With the next heartbeat, we don't know. We don't know how he's alive right now. We've not seen anything like this.
2: The doctor said, I want to go in. I want to put an ICD in, pacemaker. He said, "Uh, going into my heart is like going into a minefield. They didn't really think it would be successful. The likelihood of it being successful was um, very low.
3: We said, you're having this. Um, He didn't want it. He didn't want it placed. He didn't want to have to miss any of his baseball season. It was the state tournament was coming up, and he was not going to let his team down.
2: I tried to fight it. I was like, if I get this, I feel like my dream of playing sports is just done. I feel like I'll be a different person. And what if it messes with my heart or makes it worse? I just don't, I didn't want to have anything to do with it.
3: We let him. I sat on the... You know, the bleachers holding an AED. It
4: was a little bit emotional because I mean, we'd gotten the word that any time this arrhythmia could take him out, but he wanted to pitch, so we prayed a lot. We prayed as a team.
2: I wasn't worried. I was just really at peace playing, and I was having just a good time.
4: And he went out there, and uh, he went the full game. Won the game, uh, from the mound, pitched a two-hitter, struck out 14 and walked one. And that kid hadn't picked up a baseball in three to four weeks before that game. And I greeted him as he came off the mound and, uh, just looked at him and I said, let's say a prayer because, you know, God just lifted you up today. And you certainly have inspired a lot of people that know your story and, uh, And he just had this big smile on his face as we walked off the fields.
2: I walked with my mom and we sat on some benches and just kind of absorbed everything around us. And I just came to the conclusion like, okay, sometimes you just have to give things up to live the best life you can, I can't worry about this. So I had a lot of people praying for me. My surgeon, he reads a devotion, his daughter sent him a devotion every day before he goes into surgery, because we got around in a circle, my family and then the surgeon, we all prayed together, and I hadn't read my devotion yet, but that was actually what I prayed. I prayed that um, God just guide His hands through my heart and just do good things, please, <laughs> and just hope, hopefully everything works. And so that was just one of those things, like God saying, hey, I'm right here with you. When I was giving a hug to my parents, saying goodbye, before I went into the operating room. I was like kinda of worried and nervous, but then as soon as I stepped in the operating room I just was really happy. I it's kinda of indescribable. Like it's weird how in the scariest what should have been the scariest time of my life, moment of my life, I was I think probably the happiest I've been ever.
3: It's a great sign to see before going in. And so John walked through the doorway and the last thing I saw before the door closed was Don sitting on the edge of the bed um, laughing.
2: I just started smiling and I tried to lighten up the room because uh, <laughs> those people were probably really nervous so even when I laid down and right before I went under I was I was smiling and I was just like thinking oh how, how great is life even though I probably shouldn't have <laughs> had that point of view then. It was definitely God. He was definitely holding me up. He was right there. And it was it was just a re, really reassuring feeling like, hey, I'm here, you're gonna be okay. And so I was just happy. And so he just made me happy. When I woke up, I felt like God's hand was right on my chest and he was saying, you're okay. Everything went perfectly fine. It was the best feeling I've ever had in my life. It was all encompassing joy. In love and peace, and I just felt right, right at home. I just felt perfect, and so I kind of started bawling right then because that was a really big, powerful moment.
3: The first thing that he could say when he uh, when he could speak was, "Glory be to God." With tears running down his face, my husband said, "Babe, why is he crying? Is he hurting?" I said. He's not crying because he's hurting. He's crying because he realizes there is a God.
2: There is a God, and he is good. Hi, Pastor Mike. Thank you for your prayers. I made it. God is good. Glory to God. Thank you. Prayer is a very strong thing, and so When I woke up from surgery, I was kind of recovering a little bit, coming back to my senses, and I just had another aha moment like, oh my gosh, prayer works, and that was just one of the coolest moments of the whole thing because prayer went from like, you feel like you have to, to just like kind of say hi to God or whatever and give thanks to more of a connection with God and an outreach to God. Even though it was a bad situation, it brought a lot of good out of it because I got reconnected with people got reconnected with myself and I discovered Christ a lot more and I discovered life more too. He pretty much just changed everything, changed my whole life really, and but he changed it for the good, definitely because I think I'm a better person now than I was before. So yeah, uh stick with God. <laughs> for sure.
0: And you've been listening to John Humphrey, and my goodness, prayer is a very strong thing indeed, especially when you get families and communities praying together in unison. a common cause the Humphrey family story and that is John Jennifer his mom and mark his father all of their stories so many other stories like it here in this great country here on our American stories American stories, and we tell stories of all kind here on this show. By the way, we live in a state where it rains a heck of a lot. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. And our next story is about rain, or rather, an innovative entrepreneur's company that collects and bottles rainwater for sale out in Dripping Springs, Texas. That's right, Dripping Springs. That company is called Richard's Rainwater, and its founder, Richard Heineken, can probably be considered the godfather of bottled rainwater in the United States. Here's Richard in our own Monty Montgomery with the story. The idea behind Richard's rainwater started because of a dirty Texas well. Well,
5: I moved out to uh, Dripping Springs. I lived in Austin, Texas and moved out to the Dripping Springs to help my sister-in-law build the Austin Zoo out. It's her, her parents had this property out there. And Susie, my wife, and her sister lived out there, and her sister was uh, raising goats, and anyway, it turned into a zoo. So I moved to Dripping Springs and built a house, and out here in the hill country, there's no other source for water except for well water. And so I drilled a well, and... <laughs> the well guy, was he's leaving with a fistful of my dollars, says, Mr. Heineken, you have a lot of water there. That's a darn good well, a good flowing well. And I went, oh man, I was so excited. Go in the house, brand new house, right? And took a shower. The hydrogen sulfite was so bad, I almost threw up in the shower. And the water was so hard, when Susie did the laundry, the uh, Levi's could stand up in the corner, and our hair stood out like fright wigs. <laughs> and we said, man, we can't handle this. Called a uh, softener guy. He said, oh, yeah, oh, that's some pretty damn hard water there. You can I can put you two tandem water softeners together. I went, oh, my God. So I looked into solutions, and I ran across a doctor who became a good friend of mine, Mike McKelvin who has started catching rainwater for his wife to really realize the well water out here basically kills plants. It uh, chokes their leaves. If you spray it on their leaves, it carbonizes over so they can't, they, they suffocate. So he started a rainwater collection for his wife's roses and they flourished and his house flourished. He, went, he got into putting in his house. And he flourished and he was a really advocate for it and I met him and I became one myself. So I looked into storage and found a fiberglass manufacturer in Texas and ordered a fiberglass tank and put it in. And did a real, real Goldberg job, and it was all kind of new technology. But just plumbing is all it was. So it's just the water level. Water, if your gutter's higher than the tank entrance, it goes in by itself, right? And so I did that and hooked up a pump to it. And I took a shower and I was the happiest guy in the world. The soap just came right off. It lathered up like you can't believe. It smelled wonderful. It drank good. And the dishes, instead of being chalky, all of a sudden became uh, clear. So my neighbor comes over and says, uh, God, would you guys just buy some new dishes? And I said, no, we're just washing them in rainwater now. He said, oh my God, well, I've been buying new dishes every three years and a new dishwasher every three years. So I want that. So I went, called back the fiberglass guy and said, hey, I, w- I want to be a distributor. And uh, he said, okay, oh, let's work a deal. And so so I was selling fiberglass tanks like crazy. I was the biggest tank salesman in the whole planet. I put in you know, literally hundreds of these things and I've got a thousand people that were relying on Tanktown as their source for rainwater filters and you know maintenance prop things. And so that's how it happened. Then one day, I'm putting in these rainwater systems. I have a crew of guys, and I'm filling up our water for our consumption to keep cool. The whole crew, you know, in, a, in one of those igloo five-gallon water buckets. One day we ran out, super hot day, sun, sun in July. And I so I said, okay, guys, I gotta, I'm going back home to fill up our water again. They said, okay, hurry back. So on the way, I thought, you know, I should be able to pull into a store and buy this stuff. And the bulb went off, right? So I went, oh, okay. And then, So then I was just focused on bottling this stuff. So I read the the regulations on a water supply realized that I needed to be a, a, certif- a, a licensed operator to run a water supply, so I was, started going to correspondence schools, and I went to Berkeley, Cal, and Texas A&M, and I got my I got a license to be a public water supply operator, got a permit number and all, and then I started building a plant. And anyway, as then I get to TCQ, the, the government agency that over, oversees our water supply in Texas, and they said, "Well, Mr. Heinegan, that's a pretty good idea." But rainwater is not approved as a source for water. I said, okay. So where are you getting your water? He goes, well, we, you know where we get our water? We get out of Lake Travis. So where does that come from? Well, you know, it has it's like rain. I said, okay, that's <laughs> okay. So I, I'm gonna. I, that's why you know. So we need to make this be able to have this as a source for water. Oh, I, I don't know, sir. And another thing, Mr. Heineken. Now that we got this conversation going, we can't talk to you anymore because you're not a licensed engineer. So I went, okay, great. Well, I will come back. So I just had to prove it to them that it was a good source for water. So I built a little pilot bottling plant and they said they approved that. Built it with my own bare hands. I'm a blacksmith, I'm a sculptor. I've cut the pipes and, and used transits and got the right things and welded everything up. And then we go out and put more systems in I get a more some more money, go out and buy more metal, put it all up. Then I thought, man, this is, I'm, I am can't really start this yet. I got the plants going. I got everything going. I need some tanks. I ended up buying 13 tanks and we had like 250,000 gallons. And, and then I had the engineers, and he's a friend of mine, and basically wrote it on a napkin. I said, here, write this out, make it look real official. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to micro, We're going to put it through really tiny filters, and we're going to separate it after it goes into a couple of tanks, and then we're going to put it through UV light, and then we're gonna store it in a sanitary tank, and then we're gonna put, just before we bottle, we're gonna put ozone in it. Now, ozone, it's a really great sanitizer. Cities' water supplies use chlorine, and chlorine is a cancer-causing chemical, and so we didn't wanna do that. The Clean Water Act required public water supplies to use chlorine, and there was no other source of sanitation they would approve. You know, I have a saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. And it's the same thing these cities use. They just say, well, okay, here's a 10 gallons of chlorine. And so we're gonna have to mix that with 13,970 gallons of water. And that'll do it. Okay, it might taste a little chlorine, but anyway, can't do that. And so my plan was, I said, okay, here's the deal. If you take me to court, and I'll, and here's the little end of it. We have to end up in court. I'm going to tell the jury that, okay, here's what they want me to do with my rainwater. They want me to put chlorine in it, and that will cause cancer, possibly. And then rainwater, we've already proved it has no cancer-causing byproducts in it from the way we sanitize it. So it seems like a a really smart thing to do, and so and then also if you say I can't do it, then then it'll be it won't be good because the jury is going to say, well, Mr. Heineken, we certainly don't want you to get cancer, so I, we like your idea. They said, well, we kind of like your deal, and it's also sustainable. And then we started doing testing on it, and and then did their monthly reports and it all always came back just beautiful. And at that point, more people in Austin and out in the hill country were getting into rainwater collection. So everybody's calling this and saying, hey, uh, I, I, w- I want to put a whole rainwater system in my house. So four years later, we got the first public water supply using rainwater as a sole source of water without using chlorine. And then that's it. It's all over town and it's a pretty damn good feeling. So it's a, it's a future water, there's no doubt about it. It's still the purest water on the planet because it did never touch the ground. As soon as it touches the ground, it turns to trash. The deeper water goes, people say, oh man, my well's 10,000 feet deep, but oh man, that's 9,999 feet of trouble above it. It's just the perfect water, but it's a little difficult to get.
0: But Richard makes the bottling process sound pretty easy.
5: After catching it and put it in a, in a collection tank, that's the first thing to do. Like the city of Austin doesn't have to worry about that because they just suck it out of the lake we have to put it in a tank that has no light in it because light makes algae and algae is, is, a, is not our friend. And then we process that through uh, more filtrations and then UV light and then uh, finally, just before it goes into our bottling line, We add uh, ozone to it, and it only lasts 15 minutes, and then we put it in the bottle, and we seal the top of the bottle, so that's a perfectly pure bottle of water because there's no trihalomethanes in it, no chemicals in it, and it's just, it's just a beautiful bottle of water, and you can taste it immediately. When you taste it, it's sweet because rainwater cleans your mouth. I know it's kind of gross, but there's calcium on your teeth. All day long, it's building up calcium. It washes that off. It's just amazing. So I've never had anybody say, boy, that's a lousy bottle of water. It's always, hey, this is the best darn bottle I've ever had. And it's just, that's the fact. That's what kept us going because it's the absolute truth. There's any kind of comparison of another bottle of water. It's just... Like blind testing is just kind of a simple thing to do because you just, it's so obvious and I've come, been through a lot of them and rainwater always
0: prevails. And great job as always to Monty Montgomery and you've been listening to Richard Heineken and he's the owner of Richard's Rainwater and well, the bottled water and everything else comes out for sale from Dripping Springs, Texas. That's where the company is. And you can find out more if you aren't near Dripping Springs by going to RichardsRainwater.com. That's RichardsRainwater.com. Check them out to find out more. And we love telling stories about American entrepreneurship and American hobbyists and tinkering because that's what he was doing here, folks. He was just trying to solve a problem for himself and folks around him. Richards Rainwater, the story behind the product and the man here on Our American Story. Stories, and today we get into the heart of the story of one of America's greatest storytellers. A lot of people don't know much about Mark Twain beyond the fact that their high school teachers compelled them to read The Adventures of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But few of us know the story of how Mark Twain squandered away all of his money through a series of bad investments, then how he would dig himself out of debt. Today we have the author of the book, Chasing the Last Laugh. Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And it's by author Richard Zacks, who is a best-selling New York Times author, author of The Pirate Hunter, among many others. And thanks for joining us today, Richard. Uh, Great to be here. You bet. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, folks compelled us to read Mark Twain, and of all the things that we read that we were forced to read, this is one of the things most of us actually understood and loved. Before we even begin with the book, what is it about Mark Twain that you think connected to so many generations of readers?
6: I think it's his humor and his his uh kind of child childlike wonder and uh, mixed with cynicism. I mean he did so many things his range as a writer is about the most extreme you can imagine to m- to make fun of religion and then to uh celebrate uh, a runaway slave to i mean his it just boggles my mind. The more I read, the more I realized uh, how far he'd go in different directions and how human he was. I mean, how he he was able to pinpoint, you know, human emotions about about guilt and acceptance and generosity and greed and, you know, it's kind of you you if you paraphrase a Mark Twain story, it, it just kind of sits there and and you feel like an idiot. And then you read it and you realize. Oh, my God, the expressions that he came up with and the way he said it. And, and it, it just feels, um, frankly, so American.
0: Um, yeah, and you know, Mark Twain's books can't be pitched. I mean, if he were to pitch his book, <laughs> right. it would not end well.
6: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I was sort of surprised by that because, uh, you know, uh, we'll get to it later, but he, he winds up telling about 30 of his best stories during this Round the World Comedy Tour. And so occasionally I would just try out on Friends, just paraphrasing, what the thing was about. And, you know, I might say it's, uh, oh, he stole a watermelon and the watermelon was green and he tried to make the uh, the farmer take it back. And it just, it sounds idiotic, yeah. you know, it just doesn't kind of, you know, uh, but when he tells it, it's just the most amazing story so, or the jumping frog. I mean, when you, you know, I don't want to blow any punchlines, but, but a lot of these, it, a lot of it's in the telling and he's just a master.
0: Well, in fact, we're doing this summer, we're going to send a correspondent out for that frog jumping contest out in Calaveras County, because Twain just understood the American psyche. He was like a almost a Tocqueville-type character. He understood the heartbeat of America and made us laugh about ourselves.
6: Well, what I think is great, since you did bring up the jumping frog, um, it's kind of a perfect segue, because pe- people didn't realize about the p- private Mark Twain. The private Mark Twain, I mean, that was the first story that put him on the map. That was the one that made the National Magazine. That's the one that got him his first book deal. And he understood gambling because he was an inveterate gambler. He was just so addicted to risk. And, you know, people people write up the Mark Twain and they talk about literary this and that and, you know, uh, religion and King Leopold and all those other things. But this man loved to gamble, and he loved to gamble on pool, and he loved to play poker, and he would bet on things. And, and that's kind of what leads into my whole story because this side of his personality made him want to gamble on making huge amounts of money.
0: Yeah, indeed. And by the way, gambling, for for those of us who like it, and I love a great poker game, America loves a great poker game, (laughs) but what do we love? It's not just the risk, Richard. It's the camaraderie. It's the jokes. It's the tells. It's the games and the gamesmanship. It basically amplifies all of the things in life, takes us out of our boring lives. And it's almost a heightened reality that we wish we could live in
6: more often. Yeah, I agree with you, because all of life is some kind of risk. I mean, you just cross the street and you're risking. You drive 75 instead of 45, you're risking. But what I love, I did a piece a long time ago about a a bookmaker named Bob the Man Martin, and he said, the greatest thrill in life is winning a bet. The second greatest thrill is losing one.
1: <laughs> it's so true.
6: You know what I mean? Like, people who don't gamble don't understand that. They think I'm just trying to, like, show off with some quote or something. But it's, you want action. I mean, I sometimes only bet, like, five bucks on a, on a football game, and then I can watch Northern Illinois play <laughs> Duquesne, and I care about that game.
1: That's so true. You know? That is so, so true. And
6: people just don't get that. And Twain, oh, God, he really got it. He was addicted.
0: <laughs> yeah, and some people can get in trouble from gambling, and some people can just enjoy it. Well, the same with alcohol. And so yeah. it's like all things in the end. One or two more things. I mean, we're obviously spending some time on the book, but I want to just dig in a little bit more to Twain and his writing, because he busted all conventions. Right. I mean, this was not a guy who used proper grammar. This wasn't a guy who the, the, the fancy pants in right. New York City would think, my goodness, this is the next Proust or this is our right. Proust. I mean, talk about Mark Twain as a writer and what conventions he just busted.
6: Well, what I think is so amazing is is people don't realize that for the first 60 years of his life, he was known as a funny travel writer. I mean, everyone wants to forget that. All the people that write the essays at the universities, you know, he was known for Innocence Abroad, which was a groundbreaking travel book that basically made fun of all the pretentious travelers to Europe. I mean, it is, it is—it <laughs> so about true. you know, break, oh man, I don't know if you've read it at all recently, but it's, it's laugh out loud funny. I mean, after the first 30 pages, they're a little slow, and then after that, it just flies. But he does things like, he keeps torturing like the guides in Italy when they start getting all passionate about the statues, and Twain will say, is he dead yet? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Or like the boatmen uh, who were charging excessively to cross, like the the, the uh, Sea of Galilee. He says, um, uh, Twain says, now I know why Jesus learned to walk on water. <laughs> <laughs> so true, yeah. so I mean, true. Right. So he he was groundbreaking, and he he. I don't know if people realize, but he started by basically being a, a travel writer, and they he did well enough. They sent him to what was then the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii, and he wrote. <laughs> his stuff is so irreverent. I mean. he basically makes cannibal jokes all over the place. I mean, he was kind of unpolished at the time, but um, he came back and gave these, these, basically stand-up comedy, and he'll actually, he turns to the audience and says, does anyone have a baby I can use? You know, and they know it's a cannibal joke, you yep. know, and yep. I mean, so, yeah, he, he was great.
0: And by yeah. the way, as is the case with so many things, the reason what you did when telling the story to others is great comedy is always about words falling next to other words. It's music, it's timing, it's so much more When We Come Back, Richard Zacks, the book Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. More after these messages. American Stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton's former band, The Steel Drivers. And as Americana as Americana gets. And nothing is more American than Mark Twain, the writing of Mark Twain, the life of Mark Twain, frankly. And we're talking to author Richard Zacks, his great new book Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And while we were in the break, Richard, you had asked about just sharing one more story about, well, share it with our audience where we left off. I just to
6: tell you, you know, he yes, he's, he was known for comedy and he was known and he was known a little bit as a young adult writer but he really wanted to be a literary author and it's to, he wanted to be like Henry James and Edith Wharton on some level. He wanted all that praise which just today, you know, kind of cracks us up because he got it all through Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, but he was actually Trying to do—I mean, I think of it as kind of like John Stewart doing that movie *Rosewater*. Right. It's a little, a little bit of a slow movie. It's a very, you know, praiseworthy endeavor that he was trying to do. But it's like, no matter how good you are at one thing, you want to be something else. And, the, and the other part of him that wanted to be something else is he had grown up so poor. He just wanted to be as rich as Rockefeller. He wanted to be rich as a Vanderbilt. Which kind of leads into the whole rest of the story here
0: indeed and I, I find it particularly with comics who at one point or another just want to be taken seriously right and i we're just preparing for a tom hanks hour coming down the road and tom hanks was at this critical juncture in his life where he just didn't want to do another movie with a dog and him yeah. being a goofball and, and if you remember his agent got him a script which he took for nothing and the movie was philadelphia and yeah. though he worked at you know scale. It changed his life, and people began to take him seriously. And I think the same with Robin Williams, who did some remarkable straight acting. And it showed people that there was more than a red ball at the end of a guy's nose.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean, Twain, Twain pulled it off, too, but he eventually had to discover he could do it through satire you know, through really dark humor. I mean, he couldn't do it, by his Joan of Arc, I mean, I don't think anyone of your listeners should bother reading it personally, but, you know, he was trying to write this high literary thing, and he didn't pull it off, but that's fine.
0: No, and Oscar Wilde suffered the same thing. I mean, uh, no disrespect to his his attempt at the same thing, but we remember him for the importance of being earnest. We yeah. remember him for his humor and his and his wit and his satire.
6: Totally. Um, yeah, Mark Twain, he, was, he wrote a line, something like a classic, a book that everyone buys and no one reads. Right. You know, and everyone thinks, well, how could he do that? Because he wrote these classics. He can't mean it. Well, at the time he wrote it, he was bitter because his <laughs> books were not considered classics.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And, and luckily now they are, and he wasn't around to really ever recognize that. Now, you've studied the man's whole life, Richard. Right. What were some of the more surprising things you found out about Mark Twain?
6: Well, I would say, uh, you know, I didn't know how much he liked to drink, smoke, curse, and gamble. I mean, that's like the that's the beyond the trifecta. What do we have when it's four things? I mean, he... Uh, superfecta.
0: That's a superfecta. <laughs>
6: yeah, I gamble.
0: Yeah. I love the races. So I know what a Quinella is. I know it all, Richard.
6: <laughs> okay. Superfecta, man. Yep. So he he, 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 you know, I mean, and what I, I love all that about him. I mean, he was really one of the most flawed human beings, and that's what you know, gives him all that humanity, you know, that that he liked to do all those things. And then to make it even better, he married the most proper woman. You know, it's kind of like Margaret Dumont back in the Marx Brothers right. movies or something. I yeah. mean, Livy was an heiress in a provincial town of Elmira, New York, and she thought there were ways that you had it. She, she got mad at him for, like, not bowing properly to noblemen, you know? I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's this wonderful comedy that's behind the scenes. So, oh. I think it may his maxims are and all those great one-liners are kind of like he distilled it from his life, and that's what's kind of interesting.
0: Well, and the last thing Mark Twain needed is to be married to someone like Mark Twain, and I think the same for his exactly. wife. Exactly, what an awful marriage that would have been. Tell me more about his business investments and his inventions. He, he's almost like a Ralph <laughs> Cramden type of guy.
6: That's perfect. How did he
0: lose all his money? <laughs>
6: Well, before we get to that, I want some of the inventions because they 're just you can 't make this stuff up i mean he 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 invented special clamps so that toddlers couldn 't kick the blankets off of their beds, bed clamps he thought he was going to make money on. He got a patent for that he um, He invented a history game that had um, all these uh, you know all the questions who were the kings of England and all the rest of it, but he didn 't take time on the board and it used push pins, so basically it destroyed the board every time you played it you know he just he was all over the map. On the other hand, he did make one invention that actually did well for him, um, the Mark Twain scrapbook. It's pretty much been forgotten, but he's the first guy to think that you could do dried strips of glue on a page and then moisten them with a sponge or a rag and then put the photograph or the card or the newspaper clipping into the scrapbook. And he patented it. And it, it would have made him a ton of money, but he picked a con man to market it for him, this guy named Dan Sloat. And uh, Sloat wound up going bankrupt like three times and not paying Twain what he was supposed to get. But uh, Twain once wrote one time, when he, after he got a royalty check, he said, my blank book makes more than my written ones.
0: <laughs> hey, that's the thing about being a businessman. I mean, in the end, you've got to have great business instincts, pick your vendors right. And this right. may not have been Mark Twain's great talent.
6: No, it really wasn't. And he, the trouble is he had this moonshot enthusiasm, and he had no patience for details. So he would just get so excited about some some new invention or something that he would hear about. So the way he lost his money was basically two two areas. Um, The page typesetter, which was, you know, he grew up as, he had been a printer's devil. He'd been one of those guys that had to take those tiny bits of metal and drop them in so that the newspaper could be printed, you know, a little, each letter, individual. And he just thought if anyone could automate that, it would be worth a fortune, and he was absolutely right. The trouble was there were about 30 different main guys trying to do it, and the one he picked did not win. You know, he picked uh, James Page, and he said, "Page, uh, Page, uh, you know, he could he could talk a talk a fish to t- come out of water and take a walk with him." You know, he he just uh, a hustler. He was a hustler. Yep. You know, and at first uh, Twain called him the Shakespeare of mechanical invention, which was great. Twain would write for places like the Atlantic, and he would talk up these guys you know meanwhile he was investing in them at the same time you know
0: he did it later again that's oh that's a little bit of a hustle there right as we speak yeah set the scene for me surrounding then his bankruptcy but i think we're already getting an idea of why he went bankrupt uh but he, he he went bankrupt in 1894 right how did he react to this and how did the country react because this was a very public thing
6: Right. It was, it was, he had kept it a complete secret, and, the, and he, what went bankrupt was actually his publishing company. He had he'd done a tricky thing. He had created his own publishing company, but he named it after his uh, nephew, Charles Webster. So not everyone knew that it was Mark Twain's own publishing company. So he had kind of insulated himself from any of the problems, and then in 1894, it went bankrupt. And there were headlines, Mark Twain fails, no joke. And, you know, he it was so humiliating because he had always sold, you know, basically he was a good talker and he'd sold himself as a brilliant businessman, as his own publisher, as, a, you know, the guy. And he still thought the Page typesetter was going to, it wound up being Morgan Taylor's Linotype. The Linotype took over. But he, he still thought Page might win out. So this was just so unbelievably humiliating for him. And he went to Europe. He could no longer afford to live in his own home in Hartford, which is just amazing and rather than he had seven servants at the time including a, a black butler um instead of cutting back on the servants and just living there quietly they couldn't stand the shame in the wealthy community of doing that so they went to europe in 1891 and uh they didn't they didn't move back permanently for um for nine years
0: how old so. was he when this happened richard
6: uh, he was let's see, 1835. So he was 59, 58. He was in his late 50s.
0: And that's tough when it happens yeah. at, at that age. He,
6: he, think about it. He was he was considered you know the greatest funny travel writer. He was the maker of speeches. He was, you know, he was on his way. A lot of people did take his literary stuff seriously. So and he was just he was. Very, very successful, and then this was so humiliating, and he, and he took it, you know, he tried to put a good spin on it, but there are lines in his in his private notebooks where he just talks about hell and, and, and you know, the poor house, and he actually talks about suicide. I mean, he says that, that his wife's forbidden him, but that's how dark it got for him.
0: Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about his wife, we're going to talk about what he did uh, as it relates to all the people he owed money to, and how he got himself out of this mess. It's actually a really remarkable story, Richard. And thanks for writing this. And a, a side note, uh, you know what? What Twain was going through when he was sixty. Uh, I think you're just dead right. I mean, this is that was the life expectancy of human beings right then at that time, Richard. Oh, it,
6: was, it was just brutal to have it happen. Had that. I mean, at thirty or something, you know, you roll with it and you keep. You got like, time. Sam Walton went bankrupt at, in his late thirties, I think. You know, yeah. the Walton stores failed. You know, but yeah. yeah. But 60,
0: oof. Really rough. And by the way, you know, a couple of decades later when Wall Street collapses, people just jump out of windows. I mean, this is, the I think, the number one cause of suicide for men is financial failure. Right. Uh, and, and, and we know this. And so when we come back, let's dig into the, the rest of the story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour, Go to Amazon. Order this book now. It makes a great, great gift for a father, for a reader, for a mother, for a friend. And you'll laugh a lot. I promise. You'll laugh a lot. And then you'll want to pick up the Twain catalog. And when we come back, I'm also going to tell Richard about one of my favorite Mark Twain essays about, well, someone passing gas in front of the Queen of Elizabeth. Uh, Queen Elizabeth. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. american stories and we continue our conversation with richard zacks author of chasing the last laugh mark twain's raucous and redemptive round the world comedy tour and when we left off mark twain was staring down bankruptcy he was old he was 60 tired disappointed dead broke what happens next richard
6: well, he has to do something he really didn't want to do. He has to do a round-the-world lecture tour. They called it lectures, but it really was stand-up comedy And when he did it. And um, everyone thinks of Mark Twain as loving to do, you know, it's the Hal Holbrook thing, loving to do public speeches and all the rest of it. He actually uh, dreaded it. He... Um, he thought that people he treated you know thought of him as a clown he said once an audience sees you stand on your head they expect you to remain in that position right. and you know right. here he was trying to become more of a literary figure and you know he's 60s not you know it's not and he had to go and make people laugh so here he is miserable from losing all his money and we didn't even talk about it. he lost his wife's money I mean oh, I, don't, I don't know if you're married or not but losing my wife's money that scares me <laughs> uh,
0: luckily my wife didn't have any money in her family so I, I can never get jammed up like that Richard oh,
6: you know that's actually really good lucky he, me he, he inherited uh, I mean his wife inherited the equivalent of you know millions of dollars she was a coal heiress and her father died suddenly the first year of their marriage and he moved into a mansion thanks to that and uh, he succeeded in basically losing <laughs> losing just about all her money. Oh, so he
0: lost his money and her money. That's just uh, brutal. Whose idea was this tour, Richard?
6: Uh, it was his idea. I mean, he, he knew that the only, back then, if you think about it, there's no radio, there's no TV, there's no Internet, obviously. There's none, there's none of those things. The way you made the biggest money was people coming to a theater. And some of the highest paid people of that era were the actors. And... Uh, Twain knew that he could make, uh, I mean, the highest paid were, like, the musicians. Um, there was, um, uh, what's his name, with all the hair, the Polish uh, piano, blah. anyhow. So um, Twain knew the biggest, you know, he charge a dollar a head, and a dollar was then uh, a day's wage to come and hear him talk. So that was the way, and and he knew that he he couldn't just do the United States, he he thought that he needed to uh, you know, do the whole British Empire, wherever they spoke English. So it was this incredibly ambitious speaking tour.
0: Yeah, where did he go, and how long was he out there?
6: He was out there for, um, for one year, basically, and he went to 71 different cities. He did 122 nights of performing. He would, you know, back then we forget how you travel. He was 100 nights at sea in order to, to go to all those places. He had to take you know a boat from the West Coast to Australia and a boat from Australia to India. And, um, he uh, he played small theaters in the United States, and then he played a lot larger ones once, once, once he left. Um, he, he, the, um, he got in so much trouble with the bankruptcy that he literally had to change his tour because he was liable to be sued in the state of New York. So he had to leave New York State, and he was a little worried that anywhere in the United States they might take his, his uh, lecture, his, you know, the money from the, uh, the audience, and put it towards his debts. So he was pretty eager, to. and he never said, I'm running away. But he, he wanted to get out of the U.S., and he didn't want to return until he could know that no sheriff could, could you know, take any of the money.
0: And he was unique in his approach to, to stand-up comedy, and that is he didn't just do punchlines and running jokes. I mean, he told funny stories. Right. You have one on page 182. Okay. Uh, the one about growing old. Share that with us, if you could, Richard.
6: Sure, uh, I'd be happy to. He, um, he, he. It was after it was late one night, and he was in Australia. He was in a club in Melbourne, and he mentions that I'm, I'm going to try and do it. Here we go. Right. Uh, my, my friend on the right and I were talking just now about growing old. I said I thought that if I had created the human race, and then everyone laughs, you know, and someone yelled out, "You did some of them." Um, <laughs> (laughs) Oh, I could have done it, he says back. Um, I was asked nothing about it, and I didn't suggest anything. But I thought if I had created the human race and had discovered that they were a kind of failure and had drowned them out, well, I would recognize that that was a good thing. (laughs) And then fortified by experience, I would start the thing on a different plan. I would have no more of that 99 years business from the Old Testament. I wouldn't let people grow that old. I would cut them off at 30, because a man's youth is the thing he loves to think about, and it's the thing that he regrets. It is the one part of his life that he most thoroughly enjoys. My friend on the right suggests that we go as far as 40 years, as he doesn't want any of his 40 years rubbed out. Well, perhaps you really might go up to 40, because then you get a perspective upon youth, and that has its values, that has its charm. But, oh, dear me, I never would have created age. Age has its own value, but that is to other people, not to those who have it.
0: <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, yeah. and 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 what you're getting there is that it's the Twain genius. He's talking about something very serious. Yeah, uh, but yeah. always, always using that wit. Uh, tell but, me this: when he was doing the tour, Richard, what what was what were his intentions as related to the debts he owed? Talk well, about that and Livy's uh, role in this as well.
6: Sure. Um, but maybe we could just hit a little on his his delivery style, just because I think it's so unusual. Absolutely. We yeah. He. No. I mean, I didn't deliver that the way he would have, because I think I'd, I I couldn't, and I put you to sleep. But he he did it with with um, a slow, slow voice, and he did long pauses, and he just stood there without smiling. He never smiled. Nobody ever remembers him laughing. Hard at anyone else's joke. He was one of those comics that never laughed at anyone else's materials, and he put. He sometimes even put his jaw on his hand and just just stood there. And it takes a while, but if you start reading his speeches and you read them that way, they're way funnier. Yeah. But it's just it's just really hard to do and really unusual. The only person I can think of is like Stephen Wright. I was just about
0: know? to say Stephen Wright because that was the thing. You'd look at if you'd ever read those one-liners. I mean, they're okay. But Fresh. you watch him deliver them, they're so deadpan and it's so slow. I mean, it's like paint drying slow.
6: He said breakfast anytime, so I ordered French toast from the Renaissance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. So Twain's delivery really is at the heart of it. So all the people, all the critics would afterwards say, God, I loved his performance, but it's, until they invent some way of recording and showing all at the same time, there'll be no, no one can ever explain why this was so great. And, and uh, we had the transcripts, a lot of the speeches, and, and that was a little bit of a challenge trying to get across. So I had to put in a lot of bits about, the newspapers would actually write in where people laughed and where he paused. And that helps a lot to try and, try and get, get it, uh,
0: Well, can you imagine, Richard, trying to explain to people through a transcript the epic hits that Rodney Dangerfield did on the Johnny Carson show on paper? I mean, mean, it's a a waste.
6: Yeah, it is. Stand-up comedy, really. Like, I just went to a Louis C.K. at Madison Square Garden, and it was amazing. But if I saw the transcript of that, I probably would just go, what? That's funny. That's what I paid for? That's what I paid for? Yeah, so that that's a little bit of a challenge, but luckily I had a lot of Twain's notebooks and Twain's, um, you know, he wrote a travel travel book about this whole thing. So I had a lot of things that he meant to be read, as well as the speeches. You know, so basically for the speeches, he took 30 of his best stories that he had basically been telling for the last 30 years, and he he cherry picked, um, you know, five to 10 minute bits. You know, one goes as long as 15 or so, but and he would just he would deliver six or seven of them every night and just stand there. (laughs) and tell these stories. And he was so unusual. I mean, they were so kind of droll and also really smart, and they were so American. They were about buying his first horse, and they were about the jumping frog, and they were about stealing a watermelon. And they played incredibly well around the world.
0: When we come back, we'll close out this hour with Richard Zacks, and we'll talk about what ends up happening. I mean, does he pay off his debts? Uh, What happens to his psychological state? Does he end up being happy again, or at least something resembling happy? And we'll talk a little bit more of this whole idea of the man having to go out and make people laugh for a living. It's a hard living, folks, by the way. Think of the number of comedians who end up killing themselves. It's really, really staggering. You're out there alone, and you got to make people laugh no matter what mood you're in. And, well, no one takes you seriously. At a certain age, at a certain time in your life... Especially a guy like Twain who was looking for status, wanted to be wealthy and seen of as important. This had to be tough, even as he was succeeding and, well, trying to pay down those debts. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh. Richard Zacks is the author. Buy it on Amazon. It'll make a great, great gift. american stories we continue with richard zacks and his book chasing the last laugh so mark mark twain is traveling around the world richard how did people overseas take to twain you know jerry seinfeld has written about and talked about how hard it is to take comedy from one culture to another because so much of humor has to do with cultural references and cultural knowledge how did he do overseas
6: uh, he he was a huge hit. I mean, he did tailor a little of his um, material. He wrote a poem about um, you know about Australia that was the most ridiculous poem. He he chose the um, platypus as the Australian national animal, and uh, you know he he just uh, he was just an enormous hit. I'd say 95% of all the critical reviews are uh, are positive. I'd say he sold out about 95% of the venues. Uh, he just. He just did incredibly well, and he was basically treated like royalty by the wealthy people and by the the, the local artists, and uh, you know that was also really nice for him and Livy and his one daughter that went with him.
0: He had to love that, actually. I mean, that's yeah. in the end what he was chasing was that respect,
6: respect, and that and status. Got, absolutely, and he got he. You know what? He was almost a bigger literary figure in the British Empire on some level than he was at home. Um, it's hard to believe, but they had uh, some some British critics had just loved Huckleberry Finn, and his early travel book, uh, he wrote one that included, you know, where British travelers tended to travel in, in Germany and in Europe, and uh, it was just, it was a huge success, and, uh, but I just want to tell you about, what I think, what's one of the best celebrity perks any traveling, you know, performer has ever gotten. Yep. Um, they set aside 35 miles of the Darjeeling Himalayan Railroad and let him use it as a personal roller coaster. Get out. Yeah, yeah, and he just had a six-seater hand car, and they just going down. I mean, these were steep hills. There were four zigzags that they had to reverse the direction of the car in order to get down. The hill was so steep. They had four horizontal loops where you go loop around through tunnels. And Twain just call, called it the absolute best day of the trip and one of the best days of his life. And uh, he just loved the idea of his wife and daughter sitting there. No one mentioned seatbelts. So he's sitting there in these open cars on canvas-back seats that are bolted down, going down the Himalayas. You know, it was just it was great.
0: And by the way, at 60, this just proves his affection for risk, Richard. He's totally, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yeah. shows it.
6: Yeah. So the tour,
0: So the tour is a hit, and people are wanting to know, how's he doing on that debt-paying thing?
6: Right. And, and he's not really saying clear out cuz he's too smart to give him a straight answer. And basically what happens is he goes to London to write the book and uh rumors start swirling that um, that he's he's living alone in poverty. And then, you know, one newspaper wants to beat another and one says that Twain has died in poverty. So, uh this is when he he has says his famous line. They sent a reporter and the reporter it would, the mission was send 500 words of Twain um, dying in poverty, send a thousand words of Twain dead. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said that, uh, that, let me see if I can get it right here. He said that, um, that uh, his cousin, James Ross Clemens, was ill. The report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. <laughs> that's great. And, and that's the one. So anyhow, so he... He, um, he didn't pay it off from the trip. A lot of people, a lot of scholars have written that he paid it off from the trip. He basically made maybe half at most from the trip. And a lot of that was because Livy. he thought Livy had to stay in the best hotel everywhere and travel first class everywhere because she was an heiress. So he literally squandered a lot of his money by because um, back then performers paid their own expenses. Yeah. Um, And, um, so then he had to write a travel book. So there he was in London and he was, you know, actually, I wouldn't really have time to talk about it. He had a family tragedy. So he was in an absolutely dreadful, dark mood and he still had to write a funny travel book. And, uh, but he did it and, um, the book sold, sold well and that paid off the rest of his debt. And then he, he, he his other daughter got epilepsy right around this time. And so they stayed in Europe another year to try and see if they could cure her. He wanted to come home with her healthy and all his debts paid, but You know, you can't cure it like that. So anyhow, he comes home in October 1900 to an absolute hero's welcome. And so this story has a very happy ending. He was just acclaimed as, I mean, 1893 was basically like a depression. They call it Panic of 1893. And everyone was, I mean, I use the word hiding behind bankruptcy laws, taking advantage of bankruptcy laws, everyone a phrase it. Mark Twain did not. He paid off his debts. And I'm telling you, that was an inspiration to common Americans, to, to, just to everyone, that he didn't do the Wall Street thing, he didn't do the high finance. He, Mark Twain, our beloved writer, paid his debts. And he came home and, and just was incredibly warmly embraced. He just had un, unlimited opportunities to speak and to write and to do do anything he wanted. And uh, he had a, a friend, H.H. H. Rogers, who was uh, a big investor and a man at um, Standard Oil. And uh, he took, when Twain finally built a, a nest egg again, he took that nest egg for Twain and he tripled it for him. Just over a couple months, just because there was no such thing as insider trading in eighteen ninety nineties, didn't come till nineteen thirty four. So, anyhow, Twain it gets literary fame. He gets he gets all the money back. You know, things go well. Was he happy? Was Twain ever happy? Yeah, I don't of course, know. Of you know.
0: course, he's a, If you're a comedy writer and you're a writer, yeah. happiness is well. That's a silly term, almost, of art. Right. And uh, let's talk about that stop in India. Talk about Twain's adventures there.
6: Uh, okay, Twain, you know, he was. He had, we hadn't really mentioned that how sick he was a lot of the trip. He was sick about uh, four to 30, 40 days out of this trip. He had um, terrible bronchitis, which might have had something to do with him smoking 20 cigars a day. But um, he uh, also had uh, uh, these, these boils on his body. They called call them carbuncles. So he had been sick. And so when he gets to India, he's sick the first two weeks, and you just think, oh, it's just not going to be a very exciting time for him. Well, he thought India was the carnival. He just loved it. He, you know, seen the, the, the snake charmers and the, uh, the holy men on beds and nails and, you know, the women with the midriff showing. And uh, Twain absolutely loved India. And, uh, you yeah, know, he, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Just, how did the Indian,
0: how did the Indians, uh, Indian people uh, react to him?
6: Well, that's the thing. Um, they didn't really know who he was. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, they, they, I think it was only like 250,000 white British you know, soldiers and administrators basically governed the, the country. Right. And most of them recognized him. But, you know, Twain, you know, as much as he claimed to be bothered by it, he had a very unusual hairstyle. In that era, nobody wore their, their hair quite like that. Every every reviewer comments on the hair because it was such a bushy, curly thing. You mess. Know? It was, it was such a mess. Such a mess, yeah. right. Right. That's what I was thinking. Paderewski was another person with... You know, a mess of a hair that was really popular. Um, so, Twain, Twain loved India, and he, he, he. You know, went sightseeing, and you know, in, in his travel book, he he makes fun of um, the missionaries, uh, the Christian missionaries there. He said they've had no luck converting the Hindus, but they've converted four monkeys with eleven more, hopefully interested. <laughs>
0: that's that's tough. That is tough, yeah. and that's the thing. He pulled no punches and and nobody back then was doing what he was doing were they richard
6: no not really he 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 pushed it and then he really pushed it with his you know satire later and livy didn't want him to publish a lot of it but that's who she was and you know he 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 did wind up you know eventually especially after she passed in 1904 you know more of it came out
0: now he got settled finally he's back in the united states his dear friend who's a a a real great businessman and investor makes a lot more money from him does twain learn or does he gamble again what happens before this all
6: ends oh man so twain gets back he's now wealthy again and uh, he can afford to live at home buys another house um and, uh, of course, he invests again, and he gambles again. And um, he get, invests in a thing called Plasmon, which is a, a protein powder that's made from, you know, leftover dairy products. And uh, he loses like $30,000 on that. And uh, Which
0: was real money back
6: then. Yeah, 30 times 30. that's basically a million. Yep. So a guy who's finally gotten himself back in order again. I mean, his whole estate, when he... When he passed, is depending on how you value the books, you could value it as low as two hundred thousand. So to lose thirty thousand is a lot of money. You bet. Uh, uh, yeah. So he still he he can't get over the bu- and and H.H. Rogers tried, his his investor friend tried really hard to get him to stop stop investing. You know, at one point Twain Twain wrote him, "I've landed a big fish today." He found somebody that. Could um, duplicate uh, designs for uh, clothing with some kind of you know early photocopy right. type machine, and he wanted to just sink everything into that. I mean, he was he was a little out of control. Yeah, well, I,
0: and again, I, as I as I heard about this story and started poking around, I just kept thinking of Ralph Cramden in the sense that Ralph represented <laughs> in The Honeymooners that every man who always had some big idea and his poor wife had to deal with it, and none of them ever panned out.
6: Right. Well, I, I, uh, when when my wife and I got married, um, I actually quoted from the Honeymooners in the Wedding Vows. I, he was uh, Ralph had some future advice for his brother-in-law, Stanley. He said, he "said Stanley, when Agnes says I do, that's the last decision you allow her to make.
0: <laughs> I'm the king of my castle. Remember <laughs> yeah, some, that? I'm the king of my castle.
6: My father-in-law comes up, future father-in-law comes up to me and shakes my hand and says... Uh, you don't think you're going to get away with that stuff with my daughter, do you? I said, no, sir, she gave me permission to say it.
0: (laughs) Oh, you can't beat it. Well, Richard, thanks so much for doing this, and what a great project. What a great read, Chasing the Last Laugh. And, folks, go to Amazon.com and get it. It's Chasing the Last Laugh, again, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. The writer, Richard Zacks, and the writer he's writing about, One of the greatest, if not the greatest, American fiction writer and the funniest, Mark Twain. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Hey, thanks a lot. You bet. And you can get all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done hours on everybody from Frank Sinatra to Amart Ertegen. And not many folks can say they do that kind of thing. Take it out with some great... American music.